0: Heavenly Father, we thank You, not only for the admonition that instructs us us in the ways of righteousness, that we may know what is the manner in which we ought to walk after we come to the knowledge of Christ, but we also thank You for the vast resource that You've given us in Your Holy Word to remember Your works, Your worth, and Your attributes. Lord, we remember that You are Lord when we read of Your exploits all through the testimony of history. And especially in your scriptures, where your exploits are in full view, Lord. Where you overcame the evil one to save your people, Lord, against all odds. Where you preserved the seed of the Messiah through the ages in spite of the sin that would threaten to quench and to overwhelm your redemptive purposes throughout the generations. Lord, when you intervened and invaded in history in real time when Christ our Lord was born of a virgin some 2,000 years ago. Lord, in the record of your scriptures being proclaimed, Lord, to distant lands and the barriers of ethnic Israel, Lord, no longer defining the parameters of your people, but now those who worship you in spirit and in truth do so all over the entire globe. Lord, these reference points of your work in history are there for us to appreciate and to marvel about in your holy word. As we turn to your scripture today, Lord, to look upon your works and to See, Lord, the testimony of faith of a servant of yours who lived in ancient times. I pray that our faith would be built and our confidence would be reinforced, that our testimony and the consistency of our message would be strengthened to proclaim your glory, even today in this generation, to bring the light of Jesus Christ, Lord, to the darkness of this world with the message of repent and believe the true gospel. Open up our ears to hear your holy scripture. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use this time to quicken our understanding and to equip your church and to convict us of sin, to establish us in righteousness. Lord, I pray in all of this that you would be magnified and glorified through the testimony of, your obedience, of obedience of your people following this service. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise God. What amazing gift we have today in the Holy Scriptures. I often think in our mind, in our heart, in our affections, we have to guard the truth that the Bible is absolutely precious. We must remember that in spite of its availability to us, that many of us have a Bible on four or five different shelves in our house and on electronic devices, it is nevertheless preserved at the cost of many lives, and it's preserved unto the benefit of and the reinforcing, the encouragement, and exclusive means to do so of His people even today. The Word of God is so precious. Let us remember that today as we turn to the Holy Scriptures. Let's do so by considering Psalm 83 this morning in our Psalm series. Turn with me, if you would, in your Scriptures to this final Psalm of Asaph in this collection toward the center of the Psalms, Psalm 83. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of the Word. The title for this morning's message is, O God, Declare War. It's a summary of the cry and prayer request of Asaph, the author of the psalm. O God, would you please declare war already? Seems to be the intent or the theme, the attitude, if you will, of this psalm. A desperate plea that God would defeat his enemies, that he would overcome them by his superior might. The aim of this morning's message is to point our souls to the source of perspective correction in times of fear. I heard a phrase, uh, briefly just to illustrate, I heard a phrase um, on a radio show, an unbelieving radio show, uh, recently, and and it was this, it was just an observation that the host made, um, and uh, just interacting with media generally today, the news cycle and so forth, he said, it seems to me that reason cannot compete with hysteria. If you have two voices, one is hysterical and the second is reason, which is the one that most often has the most influence? Well, for ears and minds and hearts that are untrained by the foundational principles that would root and ground us in Christ, it usually is hysteria. People are generally more moved by the cry that there's fire, fire, or the world is falling, the world is ending that tends to move us, motivate us more than the cry for a reasonable consideration of what is before us today. The Scriptures prepare us to interact in a crazy world with foundational principles and parameters that would prepare us to be right reasoning, that is, discerning according to the Scriptures, even in times of great crisis. This is demonstrated in the heart, the prayer, and the worship psalm of Asaph in Psalm 83. And if you ever feel overwhelmed By the tests and the concerns of life, then Psalm 83 is certainly a great place, a great resource for us to focus our attention. So let's do that this morning. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word out of reverence as we consider these 18 verses of infallible truth from Psalm 83? Let us begin in verse 1 under the title, A Song, A Psalm of Asaph. Here we have the holy word of God. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant." Verse 6, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah. Verse 9, do to them as you did to Midian, and as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground, Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession of ourselves, of the pastures of God. O my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. O God, declare war on your enemies. Asaph cries from Psalm 83. This psalm concludes this section of Psalms, songs written by Asaph, this great uh, hymn writer, who contributed these inspired worship themes, odes, songs, songs of war, songs of triumph, in the canon of Scripture. He closes his hymnal, if you will, with a divine call to arms. A call to arms by the Lord against his enemies, and therefore the enemies of God. Lord, rise up, defend me, defend your name. Again, we note that Asaph shared the same enemies as God. An important application of the Psalms of Asaph. Are your enemies God's enemies? If so, you are standing with the Lord against that which He hates and opposes. The only place to stand successfully, may, might I add, it may look like you're in distress at any particular time. Ultimately, the victory is ours. The Word of God assures us in history, redemptive history recorded in Scripture and history itself proves the battle is the Lord's. Victory is ours when the battle is the Lord's. Asaph also understands the multifaceted glory of the Lord is demonstrated in decisive victory over his foes as well as acts of merciful salvation. The Lord is glorified when He defeats His enemies, utterly crushes them under His feet, grinds their bones into powder, and uses them as fertilizer for the soil of His future plans in this world. That's dramatic language, but it is not uncommon to the prophetic text of Scripture. That God utterly destroys, pulverizes, crushes, decisively defeats His enemies. And in part, He gains great glory and majesty through this act of triumph. Asaph also recognizes in Psalm 83, the mercies of the Lord also display another facet, another aspect of His glory. And so He proclaims them both. May we do the same. Asaph feels the threat and fear. Asaph is one who we can relate to, he suffers under these pressing psychological, spiritual conditions that tries the temper, the metal, if you will, of his very soul. He feels the threat and fear natural to those who who are surrounded by threats, by terrifying forces. Yet his song demonstrates a greater fear still. He is rest assured that the forces surrounding Israel, his nation and himself, are no match for the enemies, or for the armies, excuse me, of Yahweh. Whatever enemies, however many in number, whatever their uh, confederacy or their agreement to link forces in defeating this small, uh, tiny, by comparison, not only in number but in power, country, whatever the formidable opposition and foes that surround him, he knows that the armies of Yahweh, who is also called in the Psalms Lord of hosts, that is, Lord of warring multitudes, is more powerful still. Asaph's prayer, therefore, beseeches only one source of help in the face of desperation. He does not hedge his bets. He does not uh, put his eggs in a number of baskets. He does not seek for a humanistic foreign policy to assure his self-confidence that his nation will endure. He makes no compromises. He looks for help in one place, like David. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. Asaph was not one to lift his eyes to government to protect him from the threat of enemies. My help comes from the sword? No, my help comes from the Lord. Asaph's prayer beseeches only one source of help in the face of desperation, and he beseeches the king of kings, maker and sustainer of heaven and earth. Asaph's Asaph's conviction, then, is not confused or compromised by idolatrous humanism so common today, where men find confidence only, or usually, in their own strength, or the strength of the national collective around them, to influence disparate factions or to threaten their enemies into submission, boasting overwhelming force and strength. None of these are on the table. Asaph confesses with other psalms, again, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but those who truly follow Yahweh's instructions trust in Him alone. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, given this scenario, upon the answer to Asaph's prayer, the only object worthy of glory, the only object, object that gets the credit, the only person who gets to, be, to celebrate, to wear the medal of honor for success in this campaign is the Lord Himself the most high over all the earth. That's an introduction for you. Here's a heading that we might divide the text into four sections under. The heading is this, in the context of spiritual conflict, Asaph expounds the following. Think of the context of any spiritual conflict, and I believe we have principles that transcend even this historical, particular historical moment of Asaph and can well apply to our own lives in context today. Asaph expounds, first of all, The conspiracy, the nature, the character, the plans of the enemies of God. This is verses 1 through 8. Secondly, Asaph expounds victorious precedent, that is records of victory, records of triumph that have preceded this moment in his experience. That's verses 9 through 12. Thirdly, Asaph references a few divine tactics or weapons at Yahweh at the Lord's disposal. That's in verses 13 through 15. And finally, he closes with terms of surrender. How will this conflict ultimately be resolved? And what are the purposes for this exchange in God's sovereign plan? How will he use it for his glory? Let us consider these this morning. Again, Asaph expounds the conspiracy, the nature, the character, the plans and intentions of the enemies of his God, and by extension, his people, inasmuch as they were the people of God. Notice verse 1, "'O God, do not keep silence.'" Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. Notice the context here. In the absence of the Lord bringing punishment and sanctions against the enemies of the Lord, in this window of time where the Lord in his providence have allowed his enemies to gather forces to prepare a case to make their opposition known, to strengthen their armies and enemies, to gather weapons of warfare, and to assemble plans to attack the enemy. Because the Lord has not judged them for doing so as of yet, the opposition, the threat, is getting greater and greater. So Asaph cries, O oh God, declare war already! Our enemies are getting stronger. Which begs the question, why? In God's sovereignty, is He silent for this time? Why does God allow the enemies of His people to gather strength? Oh God, do not keep silent. You can hear the stress, the anxiety almost in the song, and the attitude in the heart, in the concern of Asaph's voice unto the Lord. Do not hold your peace or be still, oh God. There are answers to that question, and the greater context of Scripture can provide some direction. Why God is sometimes silent in his sovereignty for a period of time that allows his enemies the apparent time and resources to regroup. There are a number of reasons for this. One could be a test of faith. A test of faith for the people of God that even though enemies look to be more powerful than they, that they nevertheless trust the God who though unseen often in his power is superior beyond all imagination, infinitely so, over any other force in this world. Do you trust me, Yahweh is saying, even though your enemies surround you on all sides? uh, One commentator recognized that in this catalog, this summary or this uh, record, verses 6 through 8, of the kinds of people, the specific nations that were opposing them, he notes that they are people that were historically, geographically placed on the north, the east, the south, the west, north, south, east, and west of the people of Israel. The message being that, will you trust me when you are surrounded by enemies literally on all sides? That can be a reason for a sovereign silence. Secondly, God's reason often is to move His people to pray, to cry out to Him, to seek that perspective correction that we mentioned as the aim of this message that is so needful and we often lose in times of wealth, ease, comfort, and security, the Lord will sometimes allow enemies to abound so that we remember that we are utterly dependent upon Him for our next moment of safety, assurance, security, and stability in our lives and in our society. No doubt, Asaph wrote this psalm as a heart cry motivated by these circumstances, but note this psalm was recorded and it made it into the Psalter. Indicating to us God's divine intent, that he wanted many more voices to join that of Asaph, to confess that they are desperately dependent on the power of God for their salvation. This is true of us in our sin. We are desperately dependent on the power of God for our salvation. We are surrounded by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The spiritual applications are immediately apparent in this analogy of warfare if you will. We are desperately dependent on the salvation of Jesus Christ. And sometimes God allows the presence of our enemies around us to remind us that He makes a sufficient table for us in the presence of our enemies, as Psalm 23 declares. Without the presence of enemies, we may be less impressed with the power of God to protect us from them and less likely to cry out to Him in dependence and prayer that we must do to remember. That our strength, our source of security and assurance is not of ourselves, our weapons of our warfare, our strong right arm, but exclusively in the Lord. Thirdly, perhaps a reason for God's sovereign silence is a test of loyalty and righteousness or a weeding out of God's people. Oftentimes, when there is stress placed upon the church, the threat of persecution there is a winnowing fork that God is employing in history to sift the chaff from the wheat, as it were. When there is a high cost to be paid for following Christ, there are usually a lot, a lot less hangers on. So there are many who associate with Christ in times of wealth and ease when it seems like it's the popular thing to do just for selfish reasons. And we may be unaware of who is the wheat and who are the tares. God is not. Sometimes God will bring His winnowing fork. What is that? It's like a pitchfork. It lifts up the wheat and the chaff, tosses it into the wind. And then the trials, the uh, pressures that the church is placed on is like that wind. We see that that picture even later in Psalm 83 that blows and separates the wheat from the chaff. Sometimes God uh, surrounds us by enemies as it were for this purpose. Uh, Fourthly, and I got this from another commentator. I thought it was very insightful, encouraging to my faith. Sometimes God waits in silence so that his enemies would gather in one place. They would show themselves and assemble so that by the touch of his hand and by his sovereign appointment of judgment, five nations are destroyed instead of one in his sovereign and singular act of divine retribution. This happened in one of the instances that Asaph cites, particularly Gideon, who was facing the Midianites and so forth. When a confederacy, if you will, of enemy uh, nations joined forces and allied and and pooled their strength to make common cause and to oppose God's people, God gathered them sovereignly through these events by allowing in His silence this time for them to coalesce their forces. And then He used their weapons against them. What they had prepared to destroy God's people became their own self-destruction when He intervened in judgment and confusion. And when they were all gathered in one place, it just took one uh, sovereign act of His judgment and they were destroyed. These are all reasons that God sometimes deploys in this tactic of sovereign silence while His people wait for His intervention. This to build our faith. If God seems to be silent or distant or uninvolved in our intense need right now, whether personal or corporate, remember There are reasons, and we can trust Him and remember the purpose of this kind of thing, to move you as a test of your faith, a test of your loyalty to the Lord, and to move you to desperate plea to sing Psalms 83, an expectation and faith-building that God will intervene in His appointed time. Notice the nature of this conspiracy. It's a plan. It's an anti-covenant. It's like the anti-has said. Has said is the covenant-keeping love of the Lord. It's the binding truth that identifies the people of God and defines their life. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. It's the mercy of God that identifies a people with one another. The common cause of the Israelite was celebrating and living in light of the merciful acts of God to supply to them salvation from their plight. His said covenant-keeping love, was their hope. There's a sort of anti said motivation that governs and controls the conspiracy against the people of God. Let us notice it in verses 3 and following. They, speaking of God's enemies, lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more, for they conspire with one accord. Against you, they make a covenant. It is evidence of the truth that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that there are two, generally speaking, motive forces at play within the world. Those who are motivated, motivated to make allegiances and to take action and make common cause with their neighbors against the kingdom of God. And then there are those who have been redeemed out of darkness, who have been set free from this... Uh, absolute corruption of original sin to understand the truth of their allegiance or their, their truth of salvation in Jesus Christ. And now their allegiance and submission is to a new Lord, Savior, and Captain of armies. And in Christ, they now set themselves in allegiance with Him against the works of Satan and his allies. And these are the battle lines that are drawn. We see these battle lines in, uh, illustrated all through Scripture. Scripture. We won't turn there today, but just for an interesting illustration of this, Acts 23, 12 through 15, Paul, the faithful preacher, has completed many of his missionary journeys. He's made great inroads in the Gentile world, proclaiming with power and the Holy Spirit's Spirit's ability moving through him to uh, reach the Gentile nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This angers the forces of Satan and those allied with the enemy. And so there are actually those who make a covenant with one another, not to eat or to drink until Paul is dead. And so they make this agreement, this pact, this covenant, and they fast from their own food and they actually put their own lives on the line. They are so motivated to oppose the work of God among them. So this is the nature of the conspiracy. Don't be surprised if enemies of the church are intensely motivated to oppose you as an emissary, ambassador, so to speak, of Jesus Christ. Why? Because your very presence in their life testifying to Jesus Christ as a reminder of their absolute shortcoming before the glory of the Lord. After all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of Christ. And if our lives exist to magnify, to glorify, to promote, to publish Christ as a standard of perfection the one who is the perfect judge and holds retribution in the power of His hand? And if we do not find salvation in His blood alone, we stand worthy of judgment? Ultimately so, one day even the fires of hell kindled with the rebellion of the anti-elect? These truths are a real point of contention with an unbelieving world. They may not recognize it as such, but they do, there's something deep in the wiring and the subconscious of the human soul that is at enmity, as Paul says, against the truth manifest of Jesus Christ in this world until such time as God draws them, changes their hearts, causes them to confess the nature and their actions that they have taken as sin, and then to step out of darkness into the marvelous light of His salvation. So these, this is the nature of the conspiracy, and final point under conspiracy, Asaph lists a few examples of indicted co-conspirators, co-conspirators, if you will, legal language from our day, those who have been in consort working together with one another uh, for accomplishing a crime. They're listed in verses 6 through 8. It says, The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, and notice all these proper nouns, these names, identify conspirators. They're co-conspirators against the people of God. Edom, Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Asur, Ashur, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, are among them. Now later, it, it, in the, there are, are other enemies that are listed under victorious precedent. We'll save their example for the next point. But for now, let us consider this list, this catalog. There are perhaps four categories here, or maybe one more. Verses 6-8 identify the co-conspirators those who conspire against the Lord in this way. They identify them with historical examples of the enemies of God. The first is an identification with Esau. Edom and Gebel, which is the la- a synonym for the land of Edom, and Amalek, who is a grandson of Esau, all fall into this category. So enemies of God often take the character or the form or along the lines or the type of an Esau, if you will. I believe these categories are given strategically so that we can identify the different types and have some knowledge on who is likely to oppose the church even today. Who is likely to oppose the church? Those who are aligned with the spirit, if you will, of Esau, Edom, Gebel, and Amalek. Secondly, those who are aligned with the legacy, the lineage of Lot. You remember Lot, the nephew of Abraham, as I recall, who broke with the covenant to some degree, chose to set up his fortunes in the field of the plains. Sodom and Gomorrah come to mind. And then the product of this lifestyle choice and the progeny, his children that followed, illustrated to uh, worse and worse degree this departure from the covenant, the safety, the covenant boundaries of the people and place of God. And this was demonstrated by two uh, terms, by two names, Moab and Ammon. Who are these? These are the sons of incest by the daughter, daughters of Lot, who, uh, in their unbelief, sought to raise up seed to protect them by breaking God's law in this way, transgressing His laws as to sexual purity. Moab and Ammon represent this kind of enemy. Later, the people and descendants of them became, as Esau, as in Esau, bitter enemies of the people of God. Third category, Ishmael or the Hagrites. Hagrites referring to Hagar, the mother of Ishmael. Again, here is a covenant infraction in view. Notice that often these terms are, uh, it's the the legacy, the fruit uh, that follows covenant unfaithfulness. Esau and Jacob come to mind, terms of covenant unfaithfulness to the plan and purposes and relationship that God had established. Uh, Lot and Abraham and so forth, Lot's family come to mind with Moab and Ammon, Ishmael and the Hagrites, Um, Abraham's idea to uh, account for his lack of faith, taking uh, unto himself a wife, not Sarai, but Hagar to raise up descendants for himself, so forth. Covenant unfaithfulness yields a legacy of enemies and enmity against the people of God. And then adding to this, there were the longtime territorial foes of Philistia and Tyre. They were a thorn in the flesh, contesting for the land all the time with the people of God. Again, going back to covenant unfaithfulness, back in Judges, when the people were supposed to rout all of the enemies in the land and purge the place, they didn't do so. They weren't thorough in their obedience, and this covenant unfaithfulness left a thorn in their flesh that plagued them for the duration of their time in the Holy Land and this was typified by enemies like Philistia and Tyre, and the last one, perhaps an imperial foe, Asher. And most think or Assur. Most think uh, this was associated with a nation of Assyria. So these are the types of enemies that oppose the people of God. Notice some of them come from the inside, people who were once associated with the people of God and with the covenant, but have broken with it now, and because of their disobedience. Their once affiliation and association with the church has now turned into an enemy position. And these are the kinds of enemies we can expect to be opposed by even today. Esau, Ishmael, Moab, Ammon, they fall into this category. But think about it, brothers and sisters. How many enemies of the church of Jesus Christ once claimed allegiance, but now they have taken, they have twisted. They know the teachings of Scripture to some degree intellectually from being involved with the people of God, but now they are exploiting that knowledge for the devil's end, and they are like a spy that has come in to twist, to deceive, to teach falsely, to conform the Scripture uh, in such a way as to mislead God's people. This is the nature of the conspiracy, the types of enemies that oppose the people of God from the time of Asaph, even I suggest, unto now. This is the conspiracy. So it's important that we understand something about it. Secondly, in the context of spiritual conflict, Asaph expounds victorious precedent. So in spite of this kind of overwhelming feeling of opposition, both from the inside and out, and the sheer numbers and forces that are allied against the people of God, Asaph finds a strengthening force for his faith in going to and recalling God's works in the past. Victorious precedent the history of God's works. Here, let us turn to Judges chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me remind you in the context of Psalm 83, what is in view, verses 9 through 10. "'Due to them,' Asaph prays, "'O God, declare war on your enemies, uh, so to speak,' and he says in verse 9, "'Due to them, as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground.'" So, what, uh, what events do, does Asaph have in mind when he sings of this historical milestone of God's victory and triumph over Israel's enemies? We find the record of this event in Judges chapter 4. Let's pick up in verse 12. Wrong J book, that's uh, Joshua. Judges chapter 4 The people of God have come under threat of enemy nations. And there is unfaithfulness in the camp. It's not exactly a high point, a golden age in Israel's history, such that unlikely people are actually appointed uh, for this victory. And those who you would think were more, uh, who are uh, better trained for the task are indeed uh, rendered null and void as to uh, help in the matter. So uh, here we have, again, Judges 4, beginning in verse 12. Then Sisera was told that Bar- uh, Barak the son of Abinuam, had gone to the mount, up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Heresheth, Hagarim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah, of course, she was the appointed judge, was a reluctant warrior in this case. She had taken up the call to judge and to lead forth in this war effort, this defensive war effort, Barak by her side. Deborah said to Barak, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Heresheth Hegueim. Um, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Haber, the Kenite. Jael came, in, came out to meet Sisera and said to him, "'Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid.' So he turned aside to her into the tent. She covered him with a rug. He said to her, "'Please give me a little water to drink, "'for I'm thirsty.' She opened up a skin of milk." gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and, and, and took a hammer in her hand. And she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Now, that is an intense act of, de- of uh, war against this enemy. This woman drives a stake a tent stake through the head of this warring prince. Verse 22, and behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera. Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into the tent and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is a victorious precedent where God had victory through unlikely heroes from a human personnel standpoint over His enemies. From man's perspective, this was a ridiculous battle campaign. How can we expect a woman in a tent and a woman judge who are both serving in the absence of qualified, capable, and faith-filled men to accomplish such a great victory over our enemies? Surely we are doomed. But nevertheless, there is victorious precedent, even in this time where faithfulness is wanting and God defeats His enemies. And again, when the prayers are answered, He gets all the glory. There's a second victorious precedent to which Asaph refers. This is Gideon and the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. This one may be more familiar to you. As we turn to Judges 7, though, we'll just read a couple of verses to refresh our memories, beginning here in verse 19. Here in the Scriptures we have the record of a second victory. He said, um, that's chapter 8, let me turn over one chapter. Uh, And the bramble said to the trees, um, if, that's again, I I apologize, I'm having a difficult time finding my passages today. So chapter 8 verse uh, 20, chapter 8 verse, oh I'm sorry, 7 it is, 19. And he divided the 300 men, so Gideon is arranging his forces to oppose the enemy into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And you recall what happened? They did exactly this. 300 men facing down thousands at night with unconventional weapons of war. Surround them and they do as they are told. What happens? Every man stood his place around the camp, verse 21, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled when they blew the 300 trumpets. And the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against the army. And the army fled as far as Beth, Bethshitta toward uh, Zerora, as far as the border of Abimelech. Oh, that's a hard one. abel and Tabath and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. And Gideon sends out messengers and so forth. And we see even the names of the kings that are subdued are referenced in the next chapter. Chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna uh, were in Karkor with their armies, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there they had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword." So in effect, 300 men launched this battle campaign that so far has been the undoing, has has, uh, resulted in the slaughter of 120,000 of their enemies. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers of Neboah and Jogbah and attacked the army and the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled and pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and they threw all the enemy into a panic. So, those are the two precedents for victory to which Asaph refers back in our text, Psalm 83. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, those were officials uh, or uh, leaders among the Midianites, their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, of whom we just read, again, leaders among the Midians. So, what do we learn from uh, Psalm, 50, or Psalm 83 as Asaph? receives encouragement from the testimony of the Lord's prior exploits. It is to say, this is not the first time that God's people have, uh, have opposed or faced imposing enemies unlike, uh, and, and uh, defeated them when the odds were not in their favor. And God has done so through unconventional means. In the case of Deborah and Barak, we just read the account of two unlikely women who actually were absolutely pivotal into defeat of Israel's enemies while the men were languishing in their duty and shrinking back in cowardice and the like. Nevertheless, God raised up under these conditions victorious means to defeat his enemies. In the same way, Gideon and the Midianites, paring down The uh, force that will oppose Israel's enemies to a mere 300 and then giving them specific instructions, turning the enemy Midianite weapons against each other and destroying them at one fell swoop and the fallout continues through the record. So in the context of spiritual conflict, Asaph expounds these kinds of things, the conspiracy and then victorious precedent, Uh, the kinds of victories that God gets the glory. Remember those if you're facing a day that is similar. Number three, divine tactics. What are weapons of God's warfare that He reserves the right to deploy and that He sometimes uh, prefers in overcoming His enemies? And what might we look to as evidence of His power all the while? These questions are answered by verses 13 through 15, which say, "'Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind.'" There's a weapon there, pictured in the wind, "'The God who controls the wind,' can control, does control the fate, the future, the destiny of all of the peoples of the world, including enemy armies that oppose his own. Verse 14, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountain ablaze, may you pursue them. So again, flame, fire, forest fire, raging wildfire, reminds us of the power of God. It's a weapon at his disposal. Will the God who controls wind and forest fires Not prove sufficient to arm us, defend us, and indeed to overcome our enemies? No. Verse 15, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Wind, fire, hurricanes are at the command of the Lord. As far as I know, there is no fighting force on earth that can summon these kinds of power and uh, this kind of power and these kind of weapons to their disposal. We are deathly scared, deathly scared of atomic bombs and nuclear war and fallout and the like. But there is a power that is evident, even in our experience, that is far more powerful still, and it's evidence in the weather systems of this world where a sovereign God can whip up a storm at the snap of His fingers and crack the largest aircraft carrier that is known to hit the history of man in half in mere moments and sink it beneath His seas. This is the power of our Lord. With weapons like this at His hand, need we fear? No. These weapons indicate a few things about the Lord. First, there is a surgical procedure that is referenced in His wind that is, uh, in his wind that separates the chaff. In verse 13, oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. In other words, sometimes God deploys His forces not just as a blunt force, absolutely overwhelming crushing campaign, but sometimes He deploys a wind. That has purpose to it in separating the chaff from the wheat as we referenced before. Sometimes the Lord will act on behalf of His people in a way that will separate the chaff as He deploys His weapons and raises up a standard against the enemy that would seek to overrun His people. Secondly, there's the idea of a thorough and and, and final and, and absolutely destructive campaign that He's also capable of in fire. Verse 14, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountain ablaze, may you pursue them. Uh, Think of the news lately, the fires in California. Um, You'll read in the morning, uh, they are 20% contained. And then depending on the wind, by evening, the firemen themselves are running for their lives. Now, my Aunt Susan, member of this church here, she lived for a time in Redding, California, And I learned just two weeks ago that her house was absolutely destroyed in these fires. If you visit the place where she was, it's no more. You have to look at a photograph to see where Aunt Sue used to live. Because in this development, these raging fires that are accelerated because of the mountainous region, the dry forests in the winds of our Lord has taken out whole swaths of development. In some cases, the people have no time to flee Because the fire is faster than their means of escape. This is a testimony to the power of God. Now we rightly fear these things. We pray for those that find themselves in the wake. We ask God to intervene. Yes, but don't miss the illustration, the object lesson of the force and power behind our God in the raging fires of California in the news, even as I deliver this sermon. At this time, God is showing forth His power in nature itself such that we can take A cue from that not to fear, but trust in Him. A God who can set a mountain on fire can destroy His enemies in a moment. And the final example of His sheer power is this uh, notion of hurricanes, this idea, this evidence of His power in the tempests at sea. So you may pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. I did a quick Google search this morning and I was informed that in, in an average hurricane, that every 20 minutes there is enough energy present, it's equal to a 10 megaton nuclear bomb. Uh, Just for a point of perspective, uh, 1 20th of the energy of an average hurricane is enough to power the entire globe. The entire globe, the energy that it draws, electrical and otherwise, to power all of the infrastructure is at any given moment is 1 20th the power present in a single average hurricane. This is the power of our God. These are the divine tactics, the weapons at His disposal, the proof that we need not fear that God has sovereign purposes even in His silence. Because if God has hurricanes at His disposal, there's nothing that man can invent that will compete with His powerful means of utter destruction and vengeance against His enemy if and when He so chooses. Finally this morning. Let us consider terms of surrender. You see, as Asaph cries out in this declaration and request for declaration of war, that his faith is building, likely. He has identified this conspiracy as a fearsome one, but he's also looked at the history of God's record on his people and found their precedent for reasons of hope, triumph over the Lord's enemies under similar conditions in the past. He's reminded himself, even in the testimony of nature, of the power at God's disposal to rout his foes. And finally... There are terms of surrender, how God will get the glory, and there is a redemptive note as well. Let's consider 16 through 18 in closing this morning. Asaph sings, fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. First of all these terms of surrender man man in his enmity in his rebellion against the lord must come to terms with the shameful position that he has taken when man recognizes that he is in a shameful place indeed when he becomes ashamed for his sin ashamed for his allegiances ashamed and embarrassed that he has declared war against the Lord of glory, the maker and sustainer of heaven and earth, the one who is ultimately responsible for his next breath. This is a key to repentance. Let us remember the blessing of shame. And now these days we live in a culture that celebrates shamelessness. No one should feel shame for being their authentic self. Who are you to judge when someone acts according to their preferences you have your preferences, you pursue. Well, there should be no shame for any uh, life choice. And this is the culture and the values that are uh, championed, that are put forth today and our degraded, and decrepit, and our depraved culture. Asaph reminds us, though, that there is redemptive purposes in shame. When the unbeliever who has uh, declared war against the Lord and in proxy his covenant people. In other words, people hate Christians because they hate God. We as ambassadors and agents bearing the name of Christ, the world declares proxy war on Christ by declaring war on us. What's the best way to fight against God if you can't reach up into the heavens and hit him with your sword? Well, you could make war against the image of God. You could declare war against the innocent in the womb, for instance, and through abortion, you could declare yourself as an enemy of the Lord and swing the sword against that which represents something of Him, that which is made in His image in its infant, vulnerable, and innocent, so far as, uh, so far as uh, human laws concern state and so forth. These are the war, that, and, and this is not, not just true in our time, but Satan has waged war against the seed of the woman all through history. Uh, genocide campaigns have been waged, infanticide campaigns have been waged uh, through the course of human history. Now, we should be ashamed of this. You know, there are movements in our nation today online, hashtag this, hashtag that, shout your abortion, be proud of this choice that you made to, you know, uh, kill the life inside you on account of any and all excuses that one might imagine, as little as I wish I made more money to I prefer to go to college, you know, all these kinds of things. And we're supposed to be proud of actions that we've taken in war and not feel... No, there is grace in shame. As one author recently put it, there's a book, can't remember the author, but the title was great and it illustrates the principle that Asaph expounds, the grace of shame. Fill their faces with shame. Why? That they may seek your name, O Lord. If we do not feel shame for our own sin, we won't seek the Lord for repentance. We won't love the truth. We won't feel bad, sorry, remorse, anguish, and regret for what we have done. But when we do feel rightly the shame of our sin before a righteous and holy God, it may move us. It might be the very instrument that God uses to move us to seek His name. These are the terms of surrender to the Lord. You realize the shamefulness of opposing Him. And the shamelessness of those who refuse to confess their sin and to admit that they are helpless and vulnerable before a holy and powerful, omnipotent God, and they will answer to Him in judgment one day, if not now, at the great throne soon, so they must repent and place themselves at the foot of His his throne, begging for His pure, undeserved mercy and grace. So it goes on, verse 17, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. Almost as if to say, if their shame, if the awareness of the shame of the sin that motivates man to oppose God does not lead them to repentance, then let the shame they nevertheless illustrate in their actions be testimony against them and let them perish In disgrace, Asaph is recognizing, as we have said before, that God defeats his enemies in two ways. He leads them to confess their sin and shame and repentance and then embrace the righteousness of Christ. Or he defeats them by bringing judgment and hellfire ultimately against them because of the shamefulness of their sins. And then his glory is shown forth and pouring out his wrath eternally on those who in their sin, in their shame, deserve it. So Asaph pleased with God that by this way or the other, plan A or plan B, he would defeat his enemies. And he knows from his growing faith that he will, based on this precedent, based on the nature and character of the Lord. Finally, there is glory in judgment that Asaph recognizes. God glorifies himself in the judgments that do befall people in history who oppose him. Verse 18. That they may know that you are alone, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. People know, it is indisputable, it is inarguable that the Lord is the Most High when He saves people, even against what they deserve, and dispenses His glorious grace to call them out of their sin, unto resurrection life, by the power of His Holy Spirit to regenerate them unto salvation. People know that the Most High is Lord over all the earth when He does this kind of life-changing heart uh, changing miracle, but they also know that the Lord is most high over all the earth when He lets the unbeliever and the wicked one and the institutions that oppose Him perish in disgrace. In closing, let us turn to Acts chapter 4. There is an event that illustrates the principles of Psalm 83 to the nth degree, telling us that God has redemptive purposes. In, assemb- or in allowing in His sovereign silence, as it were, to let His en- enemies assemble. And this passage of Scripture proves that He uses these kinds of things to accomplish His redemptive purposes and His will. This is our worship text this morning. As His early believers are gathered together in prayer, again surrounded by enemies, they lift up their voices together to the Lord, and they say, Acts 4.24, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's a quote, a citation from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. And the people are recognizing in the heart of the psalmist, the heart of Asaph in Psalm 83 as well, that there is a conspiracy afoot. That the Gentiles are raging, plotting in vain, ultimately, against the Lord. Nevertheless, the kings of the earth have set themselves, and the rulers have gathered together. What is the purpose, Lord, of your silence in this matter? When will you speak? When will you demonstrate your glory in this case? They recognize it immediately, as we continue to read Acts 4.27. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate an alliance of worldly magistrates and authorities representative uh, of, of ungodly, rebellious institutions and nations, Herod, a governor, Pontius Pilate, and so forth, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This rebellion, this confederacy of rebellion against the people of God had, had a metastasized once again at this time in the early church, at the uh, formation of the very uh, church itself and at the ministry of of Jesus Christ, but what happens? Verse 28, to do whatever, so they had assembled, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's predestination, they understood that this was a sovereign act of God and allowing these forces to assemble and to act as they did. And why? We continue, verse 29, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Of your holy servant Jesus. So the message here is that God, in his sovereign silence, had allowed the enemies to assemble, to ally themselves, to gain their forces. And then, in this conspiracy between the religious leaders of the Jews and the uh, pagan leaders of the Romans and so forth, they declared war on the Christ. And they defeated him, it would appear, on the cross. And they were successful in killing him as he hung on that tree. Ultimately, is this really the case? Did they overcome God's purpose and plan? No. This was all predestined before the world began to take place. Why? To accomplish the very means necessary for our redemption. In killing the Son of God, they were the inadvertent sacrificers of the one sacrifice that could wash away your sin And mine. Now, should we not glean from this evidence in redemptive history great encouragement that God will not exploit the plans of his enemies today for his sovereign redemptive purposes? Brothers and sisters, he will. We have more historical precedent than Asaph had when he wrote the Song of Victory in Psalm 83. We have added to this account many things in Scripture. And the most, the chief, the highest among them is Jesus Christ himself, who was slaughtered at the hands of the conspirators, this great, unimaginable atrocity committed against the only perfect, sinless, holy man and God himself incarnate in the flesh. Yet through this event, God accomplished our salvation. Why do you think the first wave of Christians was so bold? Why do you suppose that they were willing to put their lives on the line? Because they kept in their minds, those who were faithful unto him, like Stephen. His story we've mentioned goes on to record, like Paul, who also would go to a martyr's death, Polycarp, so many others, that whose account of faithfulness even unto the bitter end is given to us in Scripture and in church history. Why? Because they kept in their mind the triumphal precedent, the glorious uh, terms in the scriptures, this victorious truth that God uses even the plans of His enemies for His own redemptive purposes. And from this, we can take great hope today. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for the perspective-changing power of Your Holy Scripture. If we ever worry, fear, our concern, or have anxiety, Lord Jesus, and in so doing, if we indulge this kind of thought, Lord, we... Repent because it confesses a lack of faith and a testimony that is less than the truth that you are not equipped, your arms not strong enough to save. Repent of that confession, Lord, in our fears and concerns. And we return, even now as we have heard your word proclaimed, our attention to the glorious truths in Scripture celebrated all through the record of your acts in history so that we might gain confidence even in a day where the rulers are allying themselves against the Lord and His anointed. We declare with the testimony of Scripture they will not be successful, and even now their doom is certain. It's only a matter of your sovereign time when the evidence and manifestation of that takes hold in our time, even in our experience, yes. And when it does, we trust that it will only magnify your glorious purposes to advance your name, across this globe, even as the waters cover the sea. May we be greatly encouraged from these texts, and and may we be bold, like your first servants were in the early church, to proclaim the gospel to the lost. Lord, with the confidence that we are soldiers of a king who has all power and authority, all nations given to him as an inheritance. In his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.